Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. My name is Dan Eikenson. I am uh, the Associate Director of the, uh, of the Cato Institute's Center for Trade Policy Studies. I'll be your moderator today. Uh, today we present a forum uh, entitled U.S.-China Trade Exchange Rates in the U.S. Economy. And we have three prominent experts uh, on the topic here to share their views with you. Uh, and I can assure you the discussion will be informative, uh, if not lively. You can talk about uh, U.S. trade. You cannot talk about U.S. trade policy today without the conversation almost instantly turning to China, and usually, or at least too often, uh, the, the the tone of that discussion is foreboding. Uh, China's stealing U.S. manufacturing jobs. China's gobbling up market share uh, by lending the U.S. government so much money. The Chinese government has leverage over U.S. fiscal and monetary policy. Uh, how can we compete against 1.3 billion people who are hell-bent on doing what it takes to return China uh, to the pinnacle of the world economy? China's ambitions are at odds with the U.S. worldview, and by engaging them, perhaps we are uh, empowering them to challenge U.S. foreign policy and security uh, objectives. Well, China's success, uh, its incredible and sustained economic growth, has not come at America's expense. Uh, our two economies are largely... Uh, complementary, and the health of both is vital to the world economy. Certainly there are disputes, and I think that should be expected uh, as the world adjusts to accommodate uh, the world's most populous country. But, but buried beneath those disputes, uh, buried beneath those disputes uh, that are so widely covered in the media, uh, is the fact that the bilateral relationship uh, has been broadly successful. Uh, the United States has become China's number one export market. China is America's fourth largest and fastest growing large uh, export market. In fact, between 2001, when China acceded to the WTO, and 2005, uh, U.S. exports to China have more than doubled, uh, which is a rate of growth that is more than five times faster than U.S. exports uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, behind those figures are billions of dollars uh, of international investment and integrated supply chains. Um, and that benefit workers and consumers and investors in both countries and, and around the world. Uh, meanwhile, I think there are important um, geopolitical objectives advanced by this burgeoning relationship. Countries with mutual economic stakes are, are far more inclined to work together constructively to minimize and avoid the possibility of armed conflict. Uh, indeed, an ever-increasing number uh, of economic and strategic interests are vested in the harmony, the continuing harmony of this relationship. But fueling the growing anti-China sentiment in Congress, I think, is above all else uh, the large bilateral trade deficit. Last year it exceeded $200 billion. Too many policymakers in Congress view exports as good, imports as bad, and the trade account as the scorecard. And to them, the deficit means that we're losing a trade, and we're losing because our partners are cheating. Uh, in China's case, the alleged cheating involves currency manipulation, uh, intellectual property theft, unfair labor practices, government subsidization of industry, opaque market barriers, and, and other underhanded practices. There's probably some truth to these allegations, but also a lot of hyperbole. Uh, regardless of the relationship between any of these policies, uh, uh, between any of these policies and the trade deficit, I think th th that relationship borders on, on, on insignificant. <coughs> Uh, if policymakers are really worried about the trade deficit and want to bring the trade account into, into greater balance, uh, they should start by focusing their attention on correcting the wayward federal budget deficit. Uh, imports from China have increased over the past several years, uh, but only as imports from other Asian countries 
uh, have declined. Other Asian countries have shifted their production activities, uh, at least the final assembly, uh, to China, and that's reflected in the trade data. Uh, Imports are not a sign of weakness, though. U.S. imports uh, rose throughout the 90s as employment levels and unemployment rates reached record highs and lows, respectively. Uh, Over the past 25 years, U.S. imports have more than tripled, uh, while the number of people employed in the United States has increased by uh, by 32 million. And as imports rose, so did GDP. Last year, we had a record number of imports, but that occurred alongside the creation of 2 million net new jobs, Uh, a decline in the unemployment rate by the end of the year to uh, 4.7%, so now lower than that, uh, and a 3.5% increase in GDP. Uh, Despite rumors to the contrary, uh, companies are not departing the United States en masse to set up shop in China. American companies invest about $12 billion uh, to set up uh, $12 billion directly in Chinese factories and real estate uh, and other hard assets, and that that really constitutes less than 1% of the stock of U.S.-owned direct investment abroad. Um, By way of comparison, American companies usually invest more each year in the Netherlands than they do in China, uh, and American companies employ more people in in Germany than in China. Um, Nonetheless, there are several provocative pieces of legislation uh, floating around Congress that aim to compel China to act in accordance with Congress's wish to correct the trade deficit. The most prominent or or notorious uh, is probably the Schumer-Graham bill, Uh, which proposes a 27.5% tariff across the board on Chinese imports unless and until uh, China allows its currency to appreciate by an amount deemed sufficient by the Congress. Friday, in fact, marks the one-year anniversary uh, of China's shift in its currency policy from a peg to the dollar to a peg to a basket uh, of foreign currencies. But the yuan has only appreciated about 3% uh, since last July under the new regime, which is probably not enough to call off the congressional hounds. I suspect the Schumer-Graham bill will reemerge after the congressional recess as a hotly debated election issue. Uh, But those who are inclined to support Schumer-Graham as a proxy for currency uh, adjustment should should, should take a look at recent history, uh, where currency values and and, and trade balances are concerned. Um, The dollar has depreciated against the currencies of most of our major trading partners since January 2002. Yet with respect to each of those partners except one, the trade deficit has increased dramatically. So I think there is more than relative price changes uh, inspired by currency movements that explain uh, changes in trade flows. Uh, rising incomes come to mind as, as one explanatory factor which, which uh, describes why perhaps the trade deficit continues to rise. And despite China's $200 billion surplus with the United States, China has ran in 2005 a $100 billion deficit with the rest of the world. China imports a lot of raw materials and a lot of components to stoke its industrial machines. Uh, If the yuan were to appreciate, and when it does appreciate, those imported materials are going to be cheaper, which will allow Chinese producers to lower their costs of production and ultimately their selling prices for export, and that could mitigate the intended policy effect of the currency adjustment. So, And also, uh, that would cause probably cause price inflation in commodities that are important to our economy, like oil and copper and iron ore and rubber and things like that. So be careful what you wish for. I'd say there isn't anything wrong with holding China's feet to the fire. Uh, China should be held to account uh, over the important commitments it made when it joined the WTO in 2001. It has certainly enjoyed enormous benefits and experienced phenomenal economic growth uh, as, a, as a member, but the United States has reaped huge benefits as well. Um, if we were to uh, hold China, if we are to hold China to account, it must be done within the rules 
The 27.5% tariff uh, would be a flagrant violation of the rules. It would be disruptive to the economy. It would inspire perhaps uh, a, a full blown trade war, and it would encourage other countries to disregard their own WTO commitments. So those are some of the stakes. I'm going to turn the podium over now to our speakers so they can go into more depth about this relationship. The first speaker is my colleague and my boss, Dan Griswold. He's the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, Dan has authored or co-authored major studies on globalization, trade, and immigration, including the new trade, uh, Cato trade briefing paper, which should, you should have, or was out on the table there, titled Who's Manipulating Whom? China's Currency and the U.S. Economy. He has testified before congressional committees uh, and writes and comments frequently for TV, radio, and major publications. Uh, Dan holds a bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Wisconsin at Madison and a diploma in economics and a master's degree in the politics of the world economy from the London School of Economics. Please help me welcome Dan Griswold. Thank you very much, Dan, for that generous uh, introduction, and I'm uh, very pleased to be part of this distinguished panel. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the issue of is China manipulating its currency or not, one that is an inherently subjective question, kind of like nailing uh, jelly to a wall. Um, But secondly, the evidence I report in my study shows that it's not the real critical question here. Uh, The alleged harm caused by China's currency regime, I believe, has been exaggerated, and it's completely swamped by the positive impact on the United States of our bilateral trade relationship with China. The Treasury Department's own assessment of uh, China's currency regime concluded that judging whether another nation is manipulating its currency or not is, quote, inherently complex and there is no formulaic procedure that accomplishes this objective. Uh, The IMF uh, gives a wide latitude uh, to members, not that they could do anything about it anyway, but to its members about what kind of currency regime uh, they should adopt uh, for their stage of development. And there's nothing inherently wrong with a fixed currency. In fact, half, precisely half of IMF members have a fixed currency pegged either to another currency or to a basket of other countries' uh, currencies. About a third of them have a managed float. And really, only one out of six uh, IMF members have a truly uh, floating exchange rate. Conclusions, you know, study after study has looked at this, and the conclusions range from the yuan being undervalued by 50% to being slightly overvalued. So there's uh, a lot of ambiguity there. Um, But there is widespread agreement inside and outside China that they do need to continue to move towards a more flexible currency. Uh, And China is taking concrete steps to get there, modest uh, but yet concrete steps to get there. Uh, The modest reforms of a year ago that Dan mentioned have been followed by legalized currency trading between banks and the legalization of futures uh, trading. Uh, There was a joint U.S.-China commission that met last fall, and the Chinese monetary authorities uh, said they were committed to, quote, enhance the flexibility and strengthen the role of market forces in their managed floating exchange rate regime. So far, so good. Here we come to the central economic and political question, though, and that is whether China's current economic 
currency regime uh, threatens U.S. economic interests? I believe the answer is a resounding no. Uh, everybody can agree that imports from China have been surging. Uh, and you heard the figures from Dan. Last year, Americans bought $243 billion worth of goods. That's a lot of stuff uh, by, by any measure. Uh, since 1994, when China pegged its currency, imports from China have grown twice as fast as imports from the rest of the world. They've grown from 6% to 15% of total U.S. imports. Now, despite their rapid in increase, imports from China have not been the major cause of job losses in the U.S. economy. Uh, Chinese imports have typically crowded out imports from other countries rather than displacing in a wholesale fashion uh, domestic production here in the United States. Chinese manufacturers tend to specialize in lower-end, lower-tech uh, goods. That's their comparative advantage, uh, whereas U.S. manufacturers tend to specialize in the higher-end, higher-tech uh, products. For example, the apparel and footwear industries have been in decline for decades before China ever emerged on the global uh, economic scene. Rising imports from China in those goods have merely displaced imports that used to come in from other low-wage countries. Even in mid-range products, such as personal computers and consumer electronics, uh, rising imports from China have typically displaced imports that used to come from other East Asian countries, and I present uh, data to this effect in my study. Final products that Americans used to buy directly from Japan and South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Singapore, have increasingly been put together in China, sent to China for final assembly and stamped made in China on it uh, with components from throughout the region. In fact, the key to understanding our trade relationship with China, and this became clear to me the more I, I looked into this, is to see China as the final assembly and export platform for a vast emerging East Asian manufacturing supply chain. China's more economically advanced neighbors make the most valuable components in their country, ship them to China for final assembly and, and additional value added, and then they come directly to the United States. And you've probably seen these figures before, but as our imports from China have been growing, our imports relative to our total imports from other East Asian countries have actually been dropping as the supply chain consolidates uh, its final stages in China. Uh, back in 1994, we used to import 41% of our imports from East Asia. Today, it's 34%. So as imports from China have been rising, they've been falling as a share of total imports even more rapidly from other countries in East Asia. So the sharp rise in imports from China is not primarily driven by China's currency regime, uh, but by its emergence as the final link in this uh, East Asian supply chain. Well, what about those three million manufacturing jobs that have been lost? You, a day doesn't go by when you don't hear that on cable TV or from a member of Congress. <clears throat> Contrary to the conventional wisdom in Washington, imports from China are not the primary cause of the loss of those manufacturing jobs uh, in, since 2000. The primary reason why we've lost those three million jobs are, one, our own domestic recession in 2001, which was especially tough on U.S. manufacturers. Uh, very slow demand abroad uh, among our major trading partners for exports from China. And most of all, and this is good news, soaring productivity among U.S manufacturers and U.S. factories. Now, despite the painful recession in manufacturing from 2000 
to 2003, real output at U.S. factories has rebounded to record highs and is now 50% above where it was in 1994. We're, we're making 50% more stuff than we were back then. It's different stuff, more higher value stuff. Uh, in fact, just yesterday there were two reports that were quite interesting uh, juxtaposed. One is that China's economic growth has accelerated yet again to over 11 percent. But on the same day, the U.S. Federal Reserve, which tracks uh, industrial and manufacturing output, reported that U.S. manufacturing output had gone up yet again uh, in the, the most recent month and is actually up 5.7 percent over a year ago. <clears throat> and uh, National Association of Manufacturer member companies and others can produce more stuff with fewer workers because those workers are so much more productive because of just-in-time inventory management and technology and robotics and all these other things which increase the productivity and competitiveness of U.S. companies. Of course, trade with China has accelerated the decline of <clears throat> uh, more labor-intensive, less competitive uh, U.S. enterprises contributing to this trend, but it has not caused an overall decline in U.S. manufacturing output uh, and capacity because they've gone up. Uh, and certainly some U.S. workers have lost their jobs because of America's expanding trade with China. Uh, but that number is small compared to the total size of the U.S. workforce and the healthy job churn that goes on every day uh, in the U.S. labor market. <clears throat> you know, even if we accept the estimates of critics of trade with China that something like 150,000 uh, U.S. jobs are eliminated each year because of trade with China, even if we accept that number, uh, it would be small in compared to the overall job churn. That's about 3,000 workers a week, about 600 a day, plenty of grist for Lou Dobbs to rant and rave uh, each night, but let's put that in a little context. While not trivial, it's a small fraction of the number of people involuntarily uh, displaced from their jobs uh, each year in the United States. In fact, every week over 300,000 Americans are applying for unemployment insurance. They've lost their jobs for various reasons, mostly technology, internal market competition, changing consumer tastes. Uh, according to the Department of Labor, 15 million U.S. jobs disappear every year. Of course, we're creating 16 or 17 million. But by either measure, uh, workers displaced by trade with China account for about 1% of displaced U.S. workers uh, each year. Meanwhile, the critics of trade with China tend to overlook the more substantial benefits of lower-priced imports for U.S. consumers and businesses, expanding export opportunities to China, and the economy-wide benefits of having that Chinese capital and savings flowing into the U.S. economy. Producers in China specialize in goods that are especially appealing to American consumers. I've got three kids. Believe me, we can't have a week go by when we aren't buying lots of stuff from China. It's like a running joke uh, in our house. In fact, more than three-quarters of those goods that we bought from China last year are basically consumer goods that make the lives of millions of Americans better every day at home and in the office. Just think of computers and computer accessories, cell phones, furniture, appliances, clothing and shoes, toys, sporting goods, TVs, radios, iPods, other consumer electronics. The remaining 20% of imports from China are uh, industrial machinery, industrial supplies, transportation equipment, and other categories. 
Those imports allow American households to stretch their paycheck, uh, to realize higher real wages, and it allows them to spend more on non-Chinese and American-made goods, boosting the economy overall. And those savings are especially important for low and middle-income Americans who tend to buy those uh, discounted consumer products from China. And then, of course, on the export side, and Dan uh, brought this up briefly, American producers and workers have gained tremendously from our growing opportunities to sell in the Chinese market. You know, if China fixed its currency 10 years ago to discourage imports into China and exports from the United States, it's been a spectacular failure. Um, imports to China have been going up, uh, and, and including from the United States. Uh, since 2000, uh, our imports have gone up two and a half uh, times from 16 to 42 billion. Uh, China has also created expanding opportunities for U.S. investors and service providers. Those goods exports to China are just part of the story, uh, maybe not the most important part. Uh, in 2003, the most recent year that figures are available, U.S. companies sold $50 billion worth of goods and services to people in China through their affiliates located in China. Uh, and they sold $7 billion of services uh, directly to China. And more than 16,000 small and medium-sized U.S. companies are now selling, uh, exporting uh, to China. Americans also benefit uh, from our ties with China every time we borrow money. Uh, you know, all those dollars that China earns from selling in our market, they don't stuff in mattresses. They want to put them to work. If they're not buying U.S. Uh, goods or services, they're buying U.S. investment assets, principally uh, U.S. Treasury bills. All this investment in the U.S. economy uh, bids up bond prices and push it, pushes down on U.S. interest rates, and lower interest rates in turn mean lower mortgage payments. Uh, for those of us in this room, lower uh, interest rates on our uh, home equity lines of credit and other consumer borrowing, uh, lower rates, lower borrowing costs for U.S. businesses, and those lower rates also uh, increase demand for durable goods, uh, automobiles, appliances, and this benefits uh, U.S. manufacturers as well. And of course, lower interest rates paid on Treasury bills uh, mean less spending by the federal government on financing the U.S. debt. Now, in conclusion, thanks, Dan. In conclusion, uh, a one-sided view of trade with China that only considers the alleged harm while ignoring these very real benefits uh, has a real danger of uh, leading to policies in which we forfeit those real benefits uh, that we've realized. Imposing punitive unilateral sanctions against imports from China because of its foreign currency regime would be a, a colossal uh, policy blunder on behalf of Congress. Trade sanctions would, would of course hurt producers and workers uh, in China, but they would also punish millions of American consumers, in particular low and middle income Americans, uh, through higher prices. They would disrupt uh, supply chains uh, throughout the Pacific Rim. Uh, they'd invite retaliation. Uh, and they would jeopardize sales and profits for thousands of U.S. companies uh, and their workers. Uh, sanctions of the kind being contemplated in Congress would also violate uh, our commitments in international trade law, the, the same commitments that China is accused of violating. Uh, tariffs on imports from China would amount to a direct tax on tens of millions of American households who buy those $200 billion in consumer goods. 
And I'll just close with this, uh, this observation. You know, one of the things I found in my study is that there's an, a, an interesting bump upward in what we import from China, oh, from August uh, through October. It's very pronounced in the figures. Imports tend to bump up uh, that time of year from, from all our major trading partners, about 10 or 15 percent, but they go up 20 to 30 percent on a seasonal basis uh, from China. Why is that? Well, it's all those stores stocking up their shelves for Christmas, buying those goods, uh, including artificial Christmas trees, uh, from, from China. Uh, the Grinch who tried to steal Christmas could not have come up with a better trade policy to suit his interests uh, than the threat of imposing steep tariffs on steep, steep tariffs on Chinese imports. In conclusion, America's commercial relationship with China is not a crisis that demands uh, immediate emergency action on the part of the U.S. government. People in both nations are benefiting tremendously from our mutual trade relationship. I think when it comes to formulating our trade policy with China, our, our political leaders should borrow from that, that ancient dictum to doctors. First, do no harm. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Well done. Uh, if you haven't picked up a copy of Dan's study, I highly recommend it. It should be outside uh, on the table. Uh, our next speaker is, is Franklin Vargo. Uh, Fr Frank is Vice President of International Affairs at the National Association of Manufacturers, uh, where he is, is the association's chief spokesman on trade issues. He is responsible for working with the NAM's 14,000 member companies to obtain congressional and executive branch trade policies uh, that, that benefit American, uh, America's manufacturers and is a leading lobbyist for trade agreements, <coughs> currency policies, and other actions to reduce foreign barriers to U.S. trade and investment. Prior to joining NAM, uh, Mr. Vargo had a three-decade trade policy career at the U.S. Department of Commerce, serving as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Europe, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Asia, and Deputy Assistant Secretary for WTO Affairs and Trade Compliance. During his career at the Commerce Department, Mr. Vargo was awarded the President's Distinguished Executive Award, which is the highest recognition a career government executive can receive. So please uh, help me in uh, welcoming Frank Vargo. Thank you. high-tech microphone here. Is it supposed to go down? Yeah. Well, thank you very much, and it's a great pleasure to be here at the uh, Cato Institute, and uh, I have the highest regard for, for you, Dan, but I have to say it's been a long time since I've seen such a small cake with so much icing. I mean, well done. That was really laid on with a trowel. Uh, you know, one, one, uh, one almost feels that, geez, a $200 billion deficit so good for us. You know, why don't we have it $400 billion or $600 billion? Uh, I, I don't share that view. I, I think it's a mistake to trivialize the fact that we have a problem. I'm not saying that you did, but uh, it is a mistake to trivialize the fact that we have a serious problem here. It's also a mistake to exaggerate it and say that, that it is the, the root of all evil. And I want to stress at the outset that the NAM seeks a very positive and balanced relationship with China that reflects market forces as closely as possible. The Chinese economy does indeed pose huge opportunities for American uh, companies and for the American people. But it all also poses challenges that, if not addressed, and addressed while they are still solvable, will run away from us and we will all regret it. 
Now, I also want to uh, note, and here I agree with Dan, that uh, the rising trade imbalance, while, while it is a growing problem for manufacturing, is far from the only factor that is addressing U.S. manufacturing. Certainly domestic energy costs, uh, other prices that are affecting U.S. manufacturing, the cost of regulation, uh, uh, a dollar that is still generally overvalued with the, with the world, although not as much uh, as it was a few years ago, are all very important factors. And we must not have China be a scapegoat for our problems. We have to address them uh, honestly. Now, um, I, I disagree with some things and agree with some things that Dan said. I have to disagree that global imbalances, including with China, aren't, uh, aren't important. I think they're very important, and we have to deal with them, not just with China, but, uh, but globally. Um, I also disagree that currency changes are, are not uh, a significant factor. Uh, they're extremely significant, and one only has to look at the fact that since we've had a rather significant change in our exchange rate relationship with Canada, that our manufactured goods deficit with Canada has fallen 80%. With Europe, we've had a smaller change. The, uh, the U.S. euro is only back to about where it, it uh, has typically been. But even there, uh, the rate of increase of our deficit is slowing. And in fact, so far this year, our deficit with Europe in manufactured goods is, uh, is falling. I most fundamentally disagree, though, with individuals who say, you know, if we, don't, if we don't have a trade deficit here, we're going to have it somewhere else because the root cause of our trade deficit is our budget deficit and our investment gap. And to me, that is, is nonsense. Um, first of all, if you look statistically at a relationship between our trade deficit and our, our budget deficit, there is none. The correlation is just about zero. But secondly, conceptually, you see the investment gap, savings minus investment, is exactly the same thing as saying you're consuming more than you're producing. And that's ex you can't do that unless you are importing more than you're exporting. These three statements are all a tautology. One doesn't cause the other any more than saying it's hot because the temperature has risen. The cause is, is elsewhere. It's outside. It could be, and in my view is, very largely exchange rate disequilibrium, not just with China, but, uh, but globally. Or it could lay, uh, lie elsewhere. Now, um, it was also noted that, uh, geez, manufacturing is doing just fine. You know, our, product, our production is up. Uh, and that's true. However, when you look at the rate of growth of U.S. manufacturing since uh, China uh, pegged its currency in 1994, we have been growing at uh, 3% a year, which is not bad. But before that, it was growing 4.5% a year. Now, I'm not saying that China caused this. I'm just saying that people shouldn't say, geez, we're doing so well, so obviously China is no uh, uh, problem uh, whatsoever. <coughs> now, uh, I will agree, absolutely, China is not the major factor in the uh, increase in manufacturing uh, unemployment that we had between 2000 and, and 2003 or 2004. In fact, when you look at the trade account, which was a factor, the bulk of the uh, effect on the, on the trade side came from the fact that exports fell, not that, that imports uh, rose. Now, manufacturing is very important to the United States. You know, it's, it's, uh, people say, well, it's only 14, 15 percent of the economy, you know, who cares? But manufacturing performs over 60 percent of the nation's research and development. Manufacturing underlies our technological ability. It underlies our ability to be a, uh, to have global uh, leadership. But most fundamentally, manufacturing is how we pay our way or don't pay our way in the world. Manufacturing accounts for 85% of all of the uh, merchandise exports of the United States. And even when you throw in services, 
it accounts for two-thirds of our exports of goods and services. You know, a lot of the uh, uh, trade disputes are in agriculture, but I have to point out that while America's farmers will export about $60 billion, a little over $60 billion this year, America's manufacturers export almost that, month, um, that much uh, every month. So at the NAM, we're looking at reducing the cost of producing in the United States. We're looking at leveling the playing field. Uh, in, including by ensuring that our major trading partners, including China and other nations, uh, reduce their trade barriers uh, and allow markets to determine exchange rates. We also need to promote innovation, and we need to ensure uh, an adequate supply of skilled workers. Now, we look at trade. The trade deficit in manufacturers last year was $506 billion. It's 11% of U.S. manufacturing production. Why do we have this imbalance? Well, first of all, uh, what did not cause it? And I want to take issue with the U.S. Business and Industry Council, which last week said, quote, trade agreements have decimated the productive base here in the United States and greatly worsened the deficits as products from outsourced factories are exported back to the United States. That's absolute garbage. Now, while the U.S. manufactured goods deficit did grow $137 billion over the last three years, that's a 37% increase. The deficit with our free trade partners, including Mexico and NAFTA, fell. It got smaller. It's more than one-fifth smaller. It hasn't grown at all. It's not a major factor in our increasing deficit. It's not a factor at all in our increasing deficit. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the, the deficit with our free trade partners is now so small that it is 6% of our global deficit in manufactured goods. 94% lies outside our, our trade agreement uh, countries. And I'm also saddened by those in Congress who say tomorrow they're going to vote against the Oman trade agreement. Uh, the Middle East is one of our most important growth markets. Manufactured goods exports to the Middle East this year, in fact, are growing about as much as our exports uh, to China. And we have a $9 billion surplus already in our manufactured goods trade with the, uh, the, the, the Middle East. You know, so why would anybody say no? We don't want Oman or other countries to lower their trade barriers to us. We want them to keep, keep their tariffs up against us. You know, it, it, it's, it's really sad. Well, where is the deficit? Well, 82% of our manufactured goods deficit is with Asia. 42% is with, uh, with China. The trade deficit with China is now the largest in the world, and it's running about $220 billion at an annual rate now. It's extremely imbalanced. Imports are six times as large as, as exports, which makes correction of the uh, deficit very, very difficult. Now, it's certainly true that China has become, uh, uh, in percentage terms, the fastest-growing a large market for U.S. exports. Uh, up about 30% this year, and that's great news. We want it to continue. We want to accelerate it. However, that that's uh, uh, it's from a small base, though. Uh, for the first four months this year, our exports to China of manufactured goods grew about $2.5 billion. That's one-fourth of the $10 billion increase that went to, uh, to NAFTA, and about half of the $5 billion increase to the European uh, Union. So uh, it, it's significant. We want it. We want it to increase faster. But, you know, let, let's not forget um, where our, our, our large export markets are uh, right now. Now, um, I also hear a lot, and, and Dan said, geez, you know, uh, imports from other Asian countries have gone down. China's just substituting. That's not how I analyze it. Uh, first of all, you know, imports have to add up to 100%. So if China's share is rising, somebody else has to be falling. Uh, you know, that's absolutely true. But more correctly, you have to look at the share of U.S. consumption of manufacturers. You have to calculate apparent consumption, look at imports. And here you see an interesting thing. China's share of our apparent consumption is rising. Um, Japan's has fallen, not nearly as much as China. And I, I, certainly there's evidence there that there has been a, a shift from uh, um, 
products in, uh, coming from Japan, most likely electronics, to, uh, to China. But when you look at other Asia, other developing Asia, their share of U.S. apparent consumption has not fallen. So it's not correct to say that there has been uh, principally a substitution here of China for other uh, Asian nations. Now, um, what I want to agree with most in what Dan said is we must not resort to protectionist action. And the NAM, as a matter of fact, was the first, it was the only organization that uh, back in April 6, 2005, got a letter out to every senator, and Senator Grassley waved it on the Senate floor opposing the uh, Schumer-Graham approach. It is absolutely the wrong approach. You know, we, we, while we can't trivialize the fact that we've got a serious problem that we cannot allow get out of hand, we cannot solve it with protectionist measures. That would We can get into that in the Q&A if you want. There are a lot of good reasons, some of which have not been mentioned, why we just cannot do that. Now, um, the, the answer is that we have to rely on market-driven mechanisms in order to have uh, our, our trade come uh, more closely in, into balance. Now, we don't have to have balance and should not have balance with each individual country, but when you've got a $220 billion deficit that could grow a, uh, a lot more, you know, you've got a problem and you've got to look at it. Now, there's no question. Uh, in my mind, and, and, and the minds of most uh, observers, that the Chinese currency is seriously uh, undervalued. Uh, China's maintained its currency at its 1994 level, despite the fact that it has a huge increase in production capacity, productivity, quality, production range, inflows, all other factors that would uh, normally uh, be expected to cause a, a currency to appreciate. Now, China's currency is not appreciating because China is sopping up all of, of the foreign currency and putting it into reserves. Its reserves now stand at $940 billion, up $230 billion in the last 12 months. And that's not good for China and uh, certainly is having a material effect on the, uh, on the currency. Now, is, is this significant? You know, the, the International Monetary Fund in April said that the, the biggest risk to the global economy are the global imbalances. And the principal challenge for global policymakers is to address this. Uh, in particular, an orderly resolution of global imbalances requires a realignment of exchange rates, with the U.S. dollar needing to depreciate significantly, significantly from current levels. Now, since this was done in April, I don't think they're talking about the Canadian dollar and, and the uh, uh, euro. Now, the G7 said that uh, in emerging Asia, particularly China, greater flexibility in exchange rates is critical critical to allow, allow necessary appreciations um, uh, and, and to lessen reliance on export-led uh, growth strategies. And the World Bank, I'm not going to quote everybody, just this is a sampling, there are lots of other uh, examples, saying a stronger yuan would curb exports, reducing inflows of foreign currency earnings that are feeding through into overheated bank lending, and a higher yuan would discourage investment in manufacturing that's feeding China's export machine, freeing up more funds to develop uh, services. Now, um, when you talk to economists, and I'm reminded that if uh, of the old story that that if you uh, took all the economists in the world and lined them up end to end, they still wouldn't reach a conclusion. But I think most of them will uh, will agree that uh, the Chinese currency is significantly uh, under undervalued. Now, this is not good for China either because um, it, it is pumping so much money into the Chinese economy. The money supply is growing about 18 percent, um, while GDP is up 11 percent. It's kind of curious that the figures don't show higher inflation. But um, 
It, it is also contributing to a continued misallocation of China's resources into its, its export industries rather than into building up the, uh, the uh, domestic economy. China's reserves of over $900 billion now um, are almost half of China's economy. Half of China's economy is sitting earning very low interest rates in U.S. Treasuries and, uh, and others. Now, um, okay. Uh, now, uh, Secretary Snow, President Bush have done an excellent job in putting this uh, on the, the radar scope and working with China. Uh, China, we have had the one-year anniversary of China's uh, realignment of uh, currencies. At that point, China said it could move as much as three-tenths of one percent every day. By my count, that means we've had about 11 days' movement. There's a lot more that, uh, that needs to be done. But w let me stress that we need a, uh, a market-oriented approach to this. If um, revaluation is so good, why hasn't China done it? Now, I, I think that uh, the, the explanation for this lies in China's governance system, where you have a collective uh, decision-making process. And you've got two schools of thought. You've got the reformers, and I think if the reformers had their way, we would have seen a significant revaluation already. And you've got the old-line hardliners from the uh, industry ministries that worry about the state-owned enterprises, and they think, well, geez, you know, a 1% change uh, would make a huge difference, and they're, they're afraid to do it. They know they have to do it. And then the trick is, how do we get, how do we get them to agree that this is in their interest sooner uh, rather than, uh, than later? Because it, it's affecting the whole world, not just the United States. Uh, Europe's trade deficit with China is running at about $170 billion now. Uh, when you talk to people in, in Geneva, which I did, uh, for the Doha round, people are saying, well, you know, um, we're not that concerned about competing with the U.S. or Europe, but we are really reluctant to lower our trade barriers because of, of, of China. Um, talk to somebody from the Ivory Coast, for example, said, you know, cloth on the Ivory Coast, uh, be before we lowered our tariffs, was, was made here, and we had people uh, uh, ma making cloth on the Ivory Coast. Now it all comes from China. There's no alternative employment opportunity from them. And you have the United Nations Development Program, the UNDP, just the other week, saying that the rest of Asia is going to have a real problem in benefiting from trade liberalization because of uh, competition from China. All of this points to a very undervalued currency. None of this points to saying beat them over the head, uh, put on across the board uh, tariffs that would have terrible repercussions. But it does point to we have to agree we've got a problem. We've got to find a workable way to solve this problem because if we don't, at some point it is really going to get out of hand. If we did have a $400 billion deficit with China, despite the NAM saying, no, we don't want to, we won't support, we oppose restrictions, those restrictions would come on anyway. The problem is solvable. Um, now, Dan mentioned that there are great benefits. There are, you know, um, and we want to realize them. And so, in, in a sense, we may not be over-importing. We could well be under-exporting. But you've got to end up paying your way in the world. And when we have, uh, when we're putting $800 billion a year on our credit card, at some point when that credit runs out, you have a real catastrophe. We want to avoid that catastrophe. We want to have a thriving U.S. manufacturing uh, industry. We want to have a thriving U.S. economy, a thriving global economy, and a great trade relationship with, with China. And if we can do it right, the United States and China are going to have, I think, one of the best trade relationships in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. You raise a lot of excellent points. <clears throat>
Uh, our final speaker is uh, Dr. Nicholas Lardy. Uh, Dr. Lardy is a senior fellow at the Institute for International Economics in Washington. Uh, Dr. Lardy came to IIE in uh, March of 2003 from uh, the Brookings Institution, where he was a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Studies Program from 1995 until 2003, and served as interim director of Foreign Policy Studies in 2001. Prior, <coughs> excuse me. Prior to his work at Brookings, he served uh, at the University of Washington, where he was the director of the he uh, Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies from 1991 to 1995. And from 1997 through the spring of 2000, he was also uh, the Frederick Frank Adjunct Professor of International Trade and Finance at the Yale University School of Management. Uh, he is an expert on Asia, especially the Chinese economy. Uh, before his directorship, Dr. Lardy uh, had been a professor of international studies at the University of Washington since 1985 and an associate professor from 1983 to 85. Uh, he served as chair of the China program from 1984 to 1989. Uh, he was an assistant and associate professor of economics at Yale University from 1975 to 1983. Dr. L Lardy has written numerous books and articles on China. Uh, the list, in fact, is, is, is so long that uh, I, I'm not going to go into it right now, but, uh, but, but quite a resume here. Uh, but Dr. Lardy also serves on the board of directors and, and executive committee of the National Committee on U.S. Uh, China Relations, uh, is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and is a member of the editorial board of the China Quarterly, the Journal of Asian Business, uh, the China Review, uh, and the China Economic Review. Uh, Dr. Lardy received his BA uh, from the uh, University of Wisconsin and his PhD from Michigan, both in economics. Uh, please help me welcome Dr. Lardy. Thank you very much, Dan. I'm going to uh, pick up on many of the themes that Frank mentioned and look at this issue from China's point of view. Now, I'm not going to talk about uh, the bilateral trade relationship at all. I'm going to really try to say what the d case is domestically from China's own uh, interests uh, in its exchange rate uh, system. And essentially, I think we're pretty familiar with the, with the basic story, which is China has a massively undervalued currency and its current account surplus <coughs> has grown dramatically over the last few years. It grew from about $17 billion, or 1% of GDP in 2001. I estimate it will be about $240 billion this year. It will be about 9% of GDP. And China is now the world's largest global current account surplus country. Uh, they were a tiny bit behind Japan in 2005. Japan is the biggest global current account surplus country. But this year, China will be the biggest by a margin of at least 50%. And what I want to suggest really is basically its current exchange rate system, which is basically still, in my judgment, a fixed exchange rate, uh, has massive uh, disincentives for its own domestic economy. And the most important of these, and the one I want to talk about briefly, is that it really undermines the independence of monetary policy. In other words, China does not really have the ability to use interest rate policy to try to manage its overall macroeconomic uh, situation. And I think it needs this uh, for at least two reasons. First of all, it needs it in order to manage uh, its response to any external shock from the global economy. China is now a very, very open economy with imports plus exports approaching 80% of GDP uh, so that changes in the global economy, say, for example, a slowdown in economic growth in the United States, would have a very significant effect on the Chinese economy because exports 
are so large. Uh, they also need to have a more independent monetary policy to moderate uh, the investment cycles that have been characteristic of Chinese economic growth over the past uh, 30 years. And essentially, the fixed exchange rate system they have today uh, mitigates against an independent monetary policy uh, for very straightforward reasons. First of all, if you want to maintain your undervalued exchange rate, you have to keep buying up all the excess supply of, of foreign exchange. That adds a lot of liquidity to the domestic banking system. You see here reserves going up. I don't take the official numbers anymore because the Chinese are now shuffling off a lot of their reserves for other purposes. They've used them to recapitalize some of their banks. Uh, they entered into a swap agreement with a number of Chinese banks to keep the reserves from coming onto the books. If you add those things back in, China is already over $1 trillion uh, U.S. dollars in uh, foreign exchange reserves. It's been going up $200 billion a year. Uh, the last three years, it's gone up $122 billion in the first <coughs> six months of uh, this year. Uh, so they've gone from less than $200 billion at the beginning of 2001 to over a trillion today. So there's a massive buildup of foreign exchange reserves, which has caused a lot of growth of liquidity in the, in the banking system, a very rapid growth of M2, which Frank mentioned, and uh, excess reserves in the banking system despite the sterilization program that the central bank has waged uh, fairly vigorously. So essentially what I'm saying is the fixed exchange rate reserves, uh, the fixed exchange rate system leads to a buildup of reserves. Remember when you're selling foreign, ex buying foreign exchange to get it off the market, you're selling domestic currency. So domestic currency supply increases. You can try to erase some of that as the Chinese have done, but you still have a lot of excess liquidity in the banking system. So that's one side of the equation. That's the supply side in, in, in terms of the, the framework that I'm looking at. On the demand side, if you don't have independent monetary policy, you can't really uh, use uh, adjustments in interest rates. And in many periods uh, in China, interest rates have been far too low. This is a calculation of the real lending rate in China going back about uh, 13, 14 years, which basically takes the benchmark one-year lending rate, which is set by the central bank, and subtracts off uh, inflation as measured by, this, by the central bank. And you can see that in a year like 2004, for example, the interest rate turned negative. In other words, banks were paying you to take out a loan because the, the nominal interest rate was less than nominal inflation. Why don't they raise interest rates? Well, they worried if they raise interest rates, they'll attract more capital inflow, and that will make it even harder to manage uh, the money supply. So where are we today? Today we are in an economy where the nominal growth of the economy is roughly 14 to 15 percent. It's 11 percent real, 2-3 on prices, so we're at 14 percent. The benchmark nominal lending rate is 5.85%. In other words, the lending rate is less than half the growth. The nominal lending rate is less than half the nominal growth of GDP. Most kind of rule of thumb suggests that you need to have a nominal lending rate at least equal to the nominal growth rate of an economy to have neutral money supply or neutral monetary policy. China has a real interest rate uh, or nominal interest rate, which is way too low, a real interest rate that is, that is also way too low. You can see it here. It's beginning to come down. The real interest rate is under 4%. It's about 3.5%. You don't want to have a real interest rate of 3.5% in an economy that's growing at 11 or 12%. 
So on the demand side for funds, what you have in China is huge excess demand for credit. Uh, in other words, if you, the economy is growing at 11, 12 percent and you can borrow for three and something, you want to borrow as much as possible. So this fixed exchange rate system is simultaneously creating both excess supply of funds and excess demand for funds. And the result is you get periods of very, very rapid growth of lending. This is my favorite measure. It's the increase in lending relative to GDP. <coughs> there was a, a sharp spike in 2003. They got it back under control. And now in the first half of this year, the increase, the increase in the stock of loans is equal to almost 25% of what the economy produced. You will not find any other economy in the world at any other time in history where you get numbers this high. Total loans outstanding in the United States as a share of GDP are about between 50 and 60%. That's the stock. And what we're talking about here is the flow, the additions to the stock. So we're having today a massive, massive credit uh, explosion. Uh, which is feeding a very, very high uh, rate of um, investment. And put it another way, the amount of new loans extended by the banking system in the first half of this year is 50% more than it was in the first half of last year. So credit quality is going down, and I'll come back to the risks. So China, I would say, I hate to use the word, but I would say China desperately needs um, independent monetary policy to help mitigate these fluctuations in the investment cycle. They try to use administrative controls, but as you can see, periodically the controls break down, and I would say we're certainly seeing a classic example of that over the last six months. Now they're rushing to put out a whole new series of uh, administrative guidelines for banks or so-called window guidance, administrative controls, and so forth. Uh, but I think the record is that those don't work very well, at least uh, for very long. Now, the second reason China needs a, <clears throat> a more flexible interest rate policy is to be able to raise real interest rates, which would help them transition to what they have said now for a year and a half, and that is the transition to a growth path that depends less on investment growth and less on an expanding trade surplus and depends much more on the growth of domestic demand. As I've already indicated, uh, the investment has been growing very rapidly. Over, we have now been in five successive years in which investment has grown more rapidly than GDP. So the investment share of GDP is, is now uh, roughly 43%, which is higher than any other uh, major economy in East Asia has ever had. Uh, we're back to the peak levels that we had back in 1993 in the last big uh, real investment boom. Now. Again, this year we see in the first half of the year, partly because of the rapid growth of lending, that, that fixed asset investment is measured by the Chinese statistical authorities is increasing at a rate of about 30 percent. The economy is growing in nominal terms at 15 percent. So the investment share of GDP is probably going to be up again this year unless something changes pretty significantly in the second half of the year. This is causing growing inefficiency in the use of investment resources. It's causing a huge deterioration in China's environment because of <clears throat> the uh, very capital-intensive growth path relies very heavily on coal and steel and so forth. I'll just give you a couple of numbers. That it, it's almost unbelievable what this economy is doing in recent years as investment has accelerated so rapidly. Over the last five years, China's consumption of coal has almost doubled to reach 
billion tons. Um, and put it in context, the Chinese economy is one-sixth, one-sixth that of the United States, but it uses twice as much coal <coughs> as we do. Uh, or to put it in global terms, China is producing in globally less than 5% of global GDP, and it is using 30% of global production of coal. It is also using 30% of global production of steel. China's steel production alone last year was 350 million tons. It's about 30% of global output. Most of it was consumed, almost all of it was consumed domestically. This year they're exporting some. So you have an economy that is relatively small in global terms with massively outsized consumption of things like coal, which are leading to a very substantial uh, deterioration of the environment, not only in China, uh, but globally. So they have become far, far too dependent on the growth of investment to push their economy ahead. They have also, in recent years, become far, far too dependent on the growth of net exports of goods and services to generate economic growth. In 2004, their surplus in, of goods and services was about $50 billion. Last year, it went to $125 billion. This year, I estimate it will be in the neighborhood of $180 billion. What that means is it's the change in the exports of goods and services which contributes to economic growth. Uh, and in China, last year, about a fourth of all growth can be explained by the very dramatic increase in the surplus. And this year, it will probably be in the neighborhood of 20%. So this is an economy where growth is being generated by high rates of investment, which have uh, major consequences in terms of declining efficiency of resource use, environmental deterioration, and so forth, and by net exports into the global uh, economy, which I think, as Frank has already outlined, does. I'm not going to talk about the bilateral, but I will say I certainly agree with him that these outsized global uh, surpluses uh, raise the risk of country partner uh, trade protectionism. Uh, which I think at least everybody in the front of the room, as, as far as I've heard, and I certainly will associate myself uh, with them, is against. Um, so uh, to put it another way, China's share of consumption in GDP, what households are consuming as a share of GDP, has been declining for about 10 years, and it has declined particularly rapidly over the last five to six years. China's household consumption now constitutes less than two-fifths of GDP. This is the lowest, and this is all Chinese numbers, no estimates here, Chinese numbers. I'm not saying they're perfect, but these numbers, if, even if they're remotely correct, show that China has the lowest share of household consumption of any economy in the world. In the United States, we're an outlier on the upside, unfortunately. We're a little over 70 percent, but for, under 40 percent is the lowest of any economy uh, in the world. So China would like to transition it. The party has said repeatedly it would like to transition to a growth path in which they can have more consumption, less growth of investment, and less growth of their trade surplus. Uh, and the exchange rate is the most important policy tool that they have to move in that direction. It would tend to reduce the growth of the trade surplus if they allowed more flexibility and didn't intervene in the market. And it would allow them to raise interest rates uh, so that they would curtail the pace and growth of investment, and it would contribute to a reversal of this long-term decline in the consumption share of GDP. So probably the most significant policy instrument that they could use to accomplish all these goals would be uh, interest rates, and they're not going to be able to use the interest rate as a tool unless they uh, allow a great deal more flexibility in the exchange rate, which under current 
circumstances would certainly lead to a significant um, uh, appreciation of the currency. Now, let me just close by saying, what are the risks? You know, the, the leadership seems to like this. In the short run, they like the high growth and so forth. And uh, I would say, however, there are substantial downside risks to maintaining their current uh, policy mix. First of all, the growing reliance on administrative controls to try to control lending growth is not consistent with their long-term goal of developing a commercially oriented banking system. We've read a lot about how they're trying to reform the banks. They're listing them in Hong Kong and they have all new corporate governance and lots of bells and whistles that they didn't used to have. But they're still getting way too much uh, window guidance, which I think is less effective over time. So it's a very important long-term goal to have a more commercially oriented banking system. And the current environment where you have excess supply of money and excess demand for money uh, does not uh, bode well for moving towards more commercialization. Secondly, you have these periodic lending booms, which tend to create excess capacity in many sectors. That has very substantial risk going forward, eventually, of future non-performing loans, which would be created when excess capacity produces downward price pressure, and all the people that borrowed money on the assumption they'd be able to repay it uh, find that that's no longer the case. And finally, I would say, and here, I do, this is just underlying what Frank has already said, long-term undervaluation of the currency, as we've had for the last five years, leads to excess investment in the tradable goods sector. It leads to underinvestment in services. It's one of the reasons China has a remarkably low share of services in GDP, even after they revised up. Remember, they revised their numbers on GDP at the beginning of this year, going back a number of years. They added about 20% of GDP. They added it all to services, practically. Said they'd been undercounting them. But even after you take this new census into account, China has a remarkably low share of services in gross domestic product. And one of the reasons is, you know, you can make more money in exports when you have a massively undervalued currency, so you tend to have a lot of investment in manufacturing. The problem, of course, is eventually China, one way or another, will get to more of an equilibrium exchange rate. And when it does, a lot of the investments that were made in the last three to five years are not going to be viable. So uh, lots of long-term problems being created by maintaining uh, this uh, fixed exchange rate system and with massive currency intervention uh, in the market. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Very, very great presentation. Uh, normally, uh, I, would, I would ask the speakers if they wanted to comment on one another's presentations, but we are running behind time a little bit, so I'd like to get to your, to your questions. Um, so if you have a question, please raise your hand, and we will, uh, I'll, I'll point you out, and somebody with a mic will come over. Uh, please state your name and affiliation, and please make sure that your question ends in a question mark. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sally James from the Cato Institute. Um, my, my question is directed uh, specifically to Dr. Lardy. If a floating exchange rate is in China's best interests, and, and I agree with you that it is, why is it not happening? What, if anything, is going to force a change in, in policy? Thank you. Well, I'm, I hope I did not use the word floating, because I don't think China is likely to go to a floating uh, currency anytime soon, and I certainly don't think they ought to eliminate uh, their capital controls anytime soon, but I certainly think they need a lot more flexibility, by which I mean less government intervention in the market. Uh, why aren't they moving in that direction? I think the, the top leadership does not understand uh, most of the economic issues having to do with the, the relationship between the domestic economy and the, and the uh, external economy. 
They like rapid growth. They're momentum players. They're saying our economy's been growing very well. What's not to like? Yeah, maybe the Americans are complaining a little bit, the Europeans more now. Uh, and I don't think they recognize the risks of the in, that are inherent in the current policy mix. And the risks only accumulate and get, get greater the greater uh, the current account surplus becomes. I mean, I think the current account surplus now of well in ex- is heading for well in excess of $200 billion, by far the largest of any economy in the world. This is a very dramatic uh, transformation. Uh, China is in totally uncharted territory in terms of the way it's interacting with the global economy today. So I think that's my simple answer. Um, decision making in China, at least, uh, I would argue, is, is a bit of a black box. We don't know exactly who's uh, pushing all the levers all the time. There are certainly many people in China who fully understand the range of issues I'm talking about today. They make recommendations on what should be done. I think the technocrats know the issues. But when you get to the standing committee of the Politburo and the, 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 you know, the, the vice premiers who are making the decisions on uh, things like interest rates and exchange rates, uh, I think the level of understanding is, is more limited. In the uh, front row of the back section there. Bill Lane with Caterpillar. Uh, first of all, I want to compliment everyone. I mean, uh, these uh, conversations, uh, this is one of the more uh, comprehensive, and we, you all dr- uh, addressed a whole number of issues, uh, from U.S. competitiveness to the, uh, the need to avoid protectionism and the need to not just focus on one thing, which is the one measure that gets all the attention, which is the difference between exports and imports, and I want to compliment all of you for that. we got a bunch of great economists up there, great trade practitioners, could someone just go into a little bit of detail on the flip side of that? I know Frank uh, sort of brushed it off a little bit. China's got one of the highest saving rates in the world. The U.S. has perhaps the lowest. By definition, how does that affect the trade imbalance? Well, let me just make a, a kind of reiteration, Bill, of what I said earlier. It's one of the same thing. You can't have one without the other, and you've got to look for uh, an external cause. And from my way of thinking, the external cause for the United States is largely the disequilibrium in the price relationship between the United States and the rest of the world. And we've had that for for quite some time, but it's grown now. For China, I I would let, I would defer to to Nick as as to the cause, but I I think, at least in my view, part of the answer stems from a, a feeling on the part of the Chinese leadership going back some years that they had to... Uh, pursue a policy of, of export-led growth, and that would mean that they would have to have, they would have to suppress the value of the, the uh, uh, currency. And I would love to see them consume more. And I was startled at Nick's figures as to how much the uh, uh, consumption as a proportion of uh, GDP is falling in China, and it's in their interest and in our interest and the world's interest to see that turnaround. <laughs> well, we do. Let me just comment. I, mean, I think there's a consensus among people that have looked at this closely in China that the reason the savings rate – one of the reasons the savings rate is so high in China, just to focus on the household sector, the household sector does generate a very large share of the total national savings, which is what you need to look at when you're looking at the savings investment imbalance. And it's largely the, uh, the a fact that a lot of the social safety network has deteriorated over the last decade uh, since the acceleration of industrial reforms in the mid-1990s. 
the share of the population that has health insurance is actually going down. Uh, so there's a very high precautionary demand uh, for savings. Um, if you get sick, if you go to the hospital, you, you know, if you don't have cash, you're not getting in. I mean, it's that simple. So a lot of people, uh, something like one-seventh of the population now has health insurance, which is down substantially. Uh, and so people are saving to be able to take care of themselves if they get sick. If you had a reasonable insurance program, people, the, you know, the, you know, if ever, let's get, say it costs a million dollars to get your disease fixed, and everyone's going to save money like crazy until they got a million dollars. Well, you know, maybe only one in a hundred people are going to get sick. Well, if you had an insurance program spread the risk over the whole population, n not every person would have to save until they have the million dollars in the bank. Uh, the numbers are not significant here, but. They haven't done that, and quite, quite frankly, one of the disappointing things is, is that they have not really initiated programs to move in that direction. They have been talking for more than 10 years about the need to establish a better social safety net. But if you look at the actual numbers on things like health insurance, they're not making any progress. So savings is staying very high and even going up, and that's why that household consumption share of GDP is going down because savings is going up, at the margin, and also the profit share of GDP is going up and the wage share of GDP is going down. Bill, I think you put your, your finger on the fundamental issue, and that is the, the savings and investment balance. The Chinese are producing you know, hundreds of billions of dollars a year in excess savings that isn't invested at home. That's spilling into overseas markets. Here we have the opposite uh, fundamentals. We're, uh, we're great at it, creating investment opportunities, but not very good savers uh, in government and, and in private households. And so under those conditions, it's, it's virtually inevitable that uh, China and Japan and other countries that produce excess savings are going to run trade surpluses and we're going to run a trade deficit. And so just by trying to manage exchange rates, you don't get at those fundamentals. I think exchange rates are more the transmission belt than, than the driver in that case. And until you address those underlying issues, and Nick is right about the underlying causes, and we can talk about that, but it, it's, a, it's a fact. And so I think until that changes, it's virtually inevitable we're going to generally be a current account deficit country in the East Asian countries, and a lot of emerging economies are going to be uh, trade surplus countries. And it would just, uh, we all agree that it would, the wrong policy approach uh, would be to raise trade barriers that, that wouldn't fix the problem. Wayne Mary, the American Foreign Policy Council. Would any of the panelists respond to an argument that I've heard in Beijing from people who fundamentally agree with what you're saying, as I do, but who also say that China is in an unusual situation? It is making up for decades of catastrophic lost time under the Mao regime, and it is facing one of the more dramatic demographic crises in world history. And that what they're trying to do is to get as rich as they can before they get too old, uh, and that they've still got 800 million people who live below the UN poverty line. They have enormous gaps between rural China, uh, life, uh, living standards, and urban China between the old Rust Belt economy and the new economy. And that while they understand the consequences in environmental depredation, uh, overheating, and that there's going to be obviously a lot of these bad loans go, go bad, that what they're essentially trying to do is make hay while the sun shines, and that this is an historic opportunity for very rapid growth, which China doesn't want to turn off because such an opportunity might not come again. 
Well, I think the, the, the economics that underlies that argument is badly flawed because the, the, the process that they're in today, this very, very capital-intensive growth path, has very uh, low efficiency. And I come back to the point that Martin Wolf made a number of years ago. The surprising thing about China isn't how fast they're growing, but how slow they're growing given how much they're investing. Or to put it another way, if they were on a more consumption-driven growth path, the structure of aggregate demand would be quite different. Household consumption could be much higher. The welfare of the population could be much higher. And they would grow, they could still grow at 10%. They are wasting enormous, immeasurable uh, amounts of resources on this uh, capital intensive growth path. So I, I agree with the, with the premise yes, they do have a rapidly aging popula- population. There will be a pension crunch. Uh, not too far away, uh, which they should be doing much more to prepare for. But the way to do it is not to pour money down black holes. Uh, right, right here, in the second row. Thanks very much, Charles Bloom. Uh, I'm here for the Metal Service Center Institute. What we do is deliver steel, copper, brass, aluminum, and plastics to people who try to make things in this country. Uh, for, first, I'd like to say, Frank, you, as a member of the NAM, we, we are very supportive of the position that you've taken today. I think you're right on. I have a few quibbles, but you're right on. And, Nick, I wish that uh, we could have taken you to some recent debates that we've had. You express so much better than I do the very points that for three years I've been trying to make. I was really you know, deeply impressed and, and fully supportive of what you say. And, uh, Dan, I'm not disagreeing with a lot of what you say, but I want to ask you one specific question. Let's say that one of our 200,000 customer accounts um, decides to offshore its component production, stops buying metals from us, imports the pieces, and assembles them in the United States. In the process, they lay off 75% of their workers, and they're able to to ship... Uh, the same amount of goods as before uh, at the same prices with one quarter of the labor. Is that a productivity gain of 300% for the United States economy? Well, if, if they were selling at the same prices, having reduced their workforce by three quarters, I'd question if it's in a competitive market. Uh, if you're able to cut your costs that dramatically, and you're in a competitive market. You've got a real incentive to lower your prices, to best your competition, and still hang on to your uh, a sensible profit margin because of your dramatically lower costs. So I, I would quibble with the, kind of the premise, premise of the question there. But the bottom line point I was making is that the U.S. manufacturing sector by all measures is producing significantly more stuff than they were 10 or 15 years ago, 50% by the Federal Reserve Board measure. Um, that's real volume, counting the widgets, uh, not just in, in what they, they get for it. And they're doing it with, oh, 3 million fewer workers. Uh, that's, that's a productivity gain uh, by, by any measure. That means U.S. companies are more competitive uh, in the global marketplace. That means we can devote more resources to producing other things in which we have a comparative advantage. It's cold comfort to those three million workers who have lost their jobs. Uh, but uh, again, that's uh, a, a small share. Far more American workers lose their job each year because of technology. You could say, take that same example you gave, leave the rest of the world out of it, and just say machines have come in and replaced three quarters of the workers. It'd be the same basic lesson. 
uh, we are more productive and we're better able to meet the needs of people by expending fewer resources and we can shift those resources to other things. If I may. Yes. I, I'm asking, is there a difference between what is reported as a shipment by a U.S. company and what is produced in the United States by that Do our government figures capture that difference? You mean the value added if, say, three-quarters of the value added comes from abroad? Uh, I don't know. It's not it. It's not reflected in GDP. That's not counted as real GDP. That that is value added. Okay, we're running really short on time, so put your hand down unless you have a very brief question, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Nick. It's Grant Aldonis. You know everything you say, whether it's about uh, the social safety net, whether it's about pensions, whether it's about the banking system itself cries out for liberalization on the financial services side and in the capital markets. And yet, and I think that's far more important and more powerful for China than anything on the exchange rate side, to be honest, even though I agree with everything you said, why won't they move on those areas? Why not invite in insurance companies? Why not invite in the other providers of uh, financial services precisely because of what it would drive in terms of positive changes in the Chinese economy for the Chinese? Well, I mean, this is a variant on the on the earlier question about the politics of, de of decision-making. I don't know. I think, you know, they've moved gradually to liberalize their uh, financial services sector. It's not, not as liberalized as it should be. But, you know, look at the, I think, steps like selling strategic stakes in their three largest state-owned banks to, to you know, uh, <clears throat> Royal Bank of Scotland and Bank of America and so forth. I think that's a big, big breakthrough uh, conceptually, now you could argue, well, it doesn't really matter. They're minority stakes. It's you know 19 percent or 19.9 percent. They they won't be in the driver's seat and so forth. But uh, I think the information they're bringing, the technology they're bringing, the the mindset that they're bringing is important. And also, I think it's a big change for China to to be willing to let uh, foreigners own any percent of these big state-owned banks. So I think it's a very gradual process. It's slow. It's frustrating. I think looking at it from the outside. But I think if you look at it from the internal point of view, look at the firestorm of criticism of, the tr of those transactions. You know, the fact that the, in, the foreign investors in those banks have tripled their money in about 90 days. And so the domestic people are saying, why are we giving away our banks at such a low price that they can buy, you know, they can put in $3 billion and in 90 days have something worth $10 billion. Uh, when the banks until quite recently, uh, in the case of Bank, uh, Bank of China, the banks, there's no listing domestically. Domestic investors don't have a chance to take part in this process. So it's a, it's a complicated domestic uh, political situation. If I could just piggyback on that, I think you've made a very important point. I, I don't believe what China needs is a dramatic expansion of any kind of government welfare, innate, welfare state. They need functioning markets in these service areas. A big reason why people save in developing countries is that there's virtually no insurance market in terms of unemployment insurance or health insurance, uh, and there's there's very little lending that goes on uh, on a kind of micro level. So they have to save. And then, of course, third is just the uncertainty. You know, the East Asian financial meltdown is still pretty fresh in people's minds in that part of the world, so they're saving for a potential catastrophe. And so I think as China... Uh, develops, but also as they open 
their services sector, and that's why it's so important for developing countries to open their services sector for their benefit first and foremost. But it has these positive knock-on effects of allowing people to, to lead more normal lives in terms of having more security because of these financial insurance markets functioning the way they should. I know there are a lot of other hands up there, but uh, we have to sort of stick to our schedule. One more question? Okay. Tom Dusterberg's had his hand up here a long time. Tom? <laughs> okay, Tom right here. Tom Dusterberg from the Manufacturers Alliance. I think this question is directed to Dr. Lardy. Uh, you made a pretty good case for, uh, for lack of time, overinvestment, I think, in, in China, overheating of the economy. You also made the case for the integration of China into the global economy, sale of commodities, sale of uh, intermediate parts and the like. Is there a danger, if we don't address these, uh, these issues that you raised, of a, a very hard landing as opposed to a soft landing that could take down the global economy with it, at least for a period of time? Mm. Well, I, I th just to make clear, I do think there will ultimately be an adjustment process in China. I don't think the share, the investment share of GDP can continue to go up at, indefinitely. Uh, it's, this will be, I believe, this will probably be the sixth year in a row it's gone up. Eventually we'll have to be in a, in a position because you start investing more and more and more and more, pretty soon supply runs ahead of demand and you, you have to start cutting back. And so there will be a period in which investment as a share of GDP will have to come down. It will probably be a gradual process over a period of years. Now, what will happen to headline GDP growth? Will there be a hard landing? Well, a lot depends on whether, what you can do to gin up some alternative source of demand. It would have to be domestic consumption. And I think it's going to be very difficult for them to gin up domestic consumption in the short run, and that is in a period of, say, two to three years. Um, so. I, there is a significant chance that the economy could slow down uh, quite a bit. It wouldn't be a re remotely near a recession, but in Western terms, but if the Chinese economy starts to grow even at 7 or 8% as compared to the 9, 10, 11% it's been doing recently, there will be a very, very big adjustment costs domestically. So even that could have very high adjustment costs uh, in you know, Zhurongji brought growth down from about 14% down to 6%, and they claimed, uh, you know, between 93, 94, and 98 in the last big – when they unwound the last big investment boom, and, and everybody claimed in China that it was a soft landing, but people forgot to notice this is the period in which a massive amount of non-performing loans appeared on the books of the banks, not by accident, in my opinion, uh, and so there were m major repercussions, and you certainly can have it again. Implications for the global economy, certainly not positive. China has been a major engine of, of growth, but China's biggest contribution to global growth was back in 2001, 2002, when global growth was waning and China was very strong, its trade growth was very strong, its contribution was huge. Uh, now, uh, you know, with the U.S. growing at a much uh, better rate um, and some recoveries in other regions, we're not as dependent on China. And remember, China's huge. Everybody talks about it all the time, but I like to remind people it's less than 5% of global GDP, so they could suffer a very hard landing, and the effects on the global economy would be fairly modest unless it coincided with a big recession in the U.S. and other adverse things, which, you know, you could get multiplier effects, which could be quite adverse for the global economy. 
I'd like to thank the panel and thank the audience for participating. If you have a question that want, went unasked, please uh, feel free to ask, ask these guys upstairs over sandwiches. Please, please join us for lunch in the Winter Garden. Thank you. Thank you.